Our reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 7, you can follow along with me as I read, either there in the bulletin or utilizing the Bibles in front of you in the Purax as we consider this passage of God's Word together. Before we look at this word, just a a brief note, I once heard the story of a young woman. She was giving testimony at a women's ministry event, not here at Cornerstone, and had come to know the Lord recently. She was in her 40s, had lived a, a life of separation from God, had been running in the opposite direction of anything resembling a faithful walk with the Lord, had struggled and battled uh, addictions, had uh, been living with multiple men at different points in her life, um, had lived a dissipated existence, and by God's grace and His kindness, He broke in upon her through the bearing of witness of a ministry, and uh, through that ministry, she came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, encountered Him personally, and received Him as her Savior and her Lord. And she was testifying before these uh, women at this women's ministry event. And ladies were teared up and crying, hearing the amazing work of what God had done in her life, how He had changed her. And after the event was over and the ladies uh, raised you know, to their feet as they were about to exit, uh, one of the ladies just turned to the, to the woman next to her and she said, wasn't that an amazing testimony? And the woman said, well, I was so distracted because her blouse did not match her pants, right? It's this proverbial missing the forest for the trees, right? Getting, getting caught in the, in the things that, that don't matter, that we think matter, and missing the heart of the matter. This is the Pharisees in the passage we're about to look at. They're technicolor in that. And and as we read through it, I want you to be careful not to put those Pharisees in a category different from yourself. But as people who struggle with very similar sins and difficulties. And And that Jesus we have come to worship today has come for the likes of us who need grace even to that depth. Let's look at God's word together. Mark chapter 7 verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God. And hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, 
whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we would ask you to meet us now in this word as we consider it in your presence. We can't understand it. We can't receive it the way that we must unless you help us. Unless you come now through the power of the Holy Spirit and open up our eyes to behold the wonderful things here that you have for us in this text. Lord, we would pray that you would keep us from distraction. We pray that you would keep us from the sin of the Pharisees here. Even in the midst of this, this moment where we're listening to your word. We can fall into sin even right now. We would ask that you would help us, that you'd protect us. And the Lord, today would be a day of salvation for someone here in this room. And for those of us, Lord, who may have wandered into um, Phariseeism, into a legalism and a hypocrisy, that you today would unbuild that self-made religion and you would show us Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to look at this text with you in, in four ways this morning around this theme of hypocrisy because it really is, I think, the language that Jesus uses to describe the Pharisees who are, the, in many ways, the object of this particular uh, text, even though they are not uh, the lesson to follow or to model. They are the means by which Jesus brings about uh, his teaching. And so uh, in this text, I think there are layers, and we're going, to try to, we're going to try to touch on some of those layers. We won't get to all of them, all of them as you might imagine, but we'll, we'll touch on what we can I want to start with this, the problem of hypocrisy. I want to start with, with, with that point. And then, then I want to move to the problem that's underneath the problem of hypocrisy. All right, to the problem that's underneath the problem of hypocrisy, because I think we need to, we need to understand there's, there's more going on there. Th then I want to look at the problem that is underneath all of the problems. You see how we're going deeper? And then finally, we're going to look at the solution. All right, so we're going to start with the problem of hypocrisy. Notice that's the word that Jesus uses there in verse 6 to describe 
these Pharisees who have come into the picture, who are engaging now with he and his disciples. They've come from uh, Jerusalem. They've likely been called to the place where uh, Jesus is, or they have come on their own initiative in order to search out the things that they've been uh, hearing about Jesus and maybe uh, learning about what Jesus has, has said, and they need to go see it for themselves. They need to go consider it. They they are on, we might say, a kind of witch hunt in this text. And when Jesus first speaks to them, he borrows words from the prophet Isaiah. And he says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Now I think this word hypocrite is critically important to understand the teaching of the text that's before us. In fact, it's the one word that Jesus uses, I think, that summarizes the many different words that could describe uh, the Pharisees, that they are hypocrites. And this, uh, this word and its custom used in the first century was actually a theatrical word. It was used of those who were, who were actors on uh, a stage. Um, it would have been common in the first century for those who were, say, in uh, Oedipus Rex by Sophocles, and they were there on the, the stage, and the, and, the, and the man who was Oedipus Rex would put up a mask. You know, think Mardi Gras mask, or think, think something along that line as a mask to display his, his character, to distinguish who it is that uh, he was in the drama. And, and Jesus is, in a very real sense, saying that these Pharisees are are mask wearers. They're, they're on a stage. They are performing a, a role. The mask is a mask of devotion to God. But when their masks are off, that is when their true selves and attitudes are revealed, we come to find out that they don't even know God at all. They have no relationship to Him whatsoever. They look holy and righteous and devoted when they're on stage, when they're in performance mode, when the masks are up. But nothing could be farther from the truth when you peel back the mask and you begin to realize who they really are. And we've likely all heard the criticism from our unbelieving family and friends at some point where we've maybe invited someone uh, to church and they've said, oh, that's very kind of you to invite me uh, to church. And, but I don't go to church because the church is filled with hypocrites. Now, it's true that the presence of hypocrites in the church is a reality. It may not be actually a good excuse for not attending worship on Sunday morning because it's actually not about the people is the reason that you're ultimately here, but it's about the worship of uh, the living God. But the fact of the matter is that when you've heard that criticism from others, you've, you've probably stumbled upon a charge that, well, there's plenty of evidence that it is correct. Now, I'd like to suggest there are actually two types of hypocrites, maybe, maybe even in this room here this morning. Uh, one is I'm going to call the true hypocrite. That's really the Pharisees here in the text. These are hardened, dyed-in-the-wool hypocrites, meaning these are people who have never come to a knowledge of the Lord. Uh, they have never met Jesus Christ in a saving way. They've never been genuine followers of Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. And yet they think that they know God. 
and they work really hard at being good Christians, cleaning themselves up and doing all the things that Christians do and keep commands, but they've never known the joy of the Christian life. They've never experienced the freedom and the peace of what it means to be a Christian because they've never truly imbibed the riches and the depths of God's grace. When you would ask them, what does it mean to be, are you a Christian? They would answer with some response like, yes, I'm trying to be. <laughs> yeah, I'm working hard at it. Which is an indication they have no idea what we're talking about. Because you don't work hard at it. It's not something you actually do. These are hardened, dyed-in-the-wool hypocrites. They actually think they know God, they don't know God, and you can't convince them otherwise. But there's a lot of us in this room who are Christians who struggle with hypocrisy. Christians who struggle with hypocrisy. We love Jesus. We, we know him personally and savingly. His grace is our only hope. But in our living of the Christian life, we fall into patterns of self-righteousness. We fall into patterns of self-reliant religious uh, performance. And truth be told, more times than not, uh, we find ourselves defaulting there throughout the week and sort of waking up on Sunday morning in the midst of the service and go, man, I really missed the boat this week. But we can see it. <laughs> we can see that we missed the boat. We get back in the boat and yes, by you know, Monday morning, we're, we're you know, hanging on to the edge again, Right? We're struggling with hypocrisy, but we can be certain that we know the joy and the peace and the freedom of what it means to be found in Christ. And yet, there's insecurity and self-righteousness that's right at the center of our daily struggle. Over the centuries, no sin, I believe, has sunk its teeth as deep into the church and destroyed the church's witness over and over again than the sin of hypocrisy. I think the question I want to ask now is, if that's the problem of this text, this problem of hypocrisy, this acting, this pretending, this, this lip speaking one way, heart being another, testifying to one thing, the parallel life being something different on the inside, if that's the issue, how does that happen to us? <laughs> why, why does this happen? How do we get there? What takes place? Well, notice that the whole narrative unfolds around the disciples eating with defiled, that is, unwashed hands. That's really the object, the focal point of verse 2. Now, some of you, because, you know, we've been, <laughs> we've been inundated with, uh, with themes of washing hands for a, a while now. And so, so some of us, when we, we read like, well, I'm really grateful that the Pharisees are concerned about washing hands, right? You remember about this time a year ago, there was a lot of talk about washing hands. There's still a decent amount of talk about washing hands. And uh, there, I've come to realize after being instructed a year ago how to wash my hands that I had never washed my hands as faithfully as I should have washed my hands. And that's changed over the course of this, this year. You know, you get them wet for five seconds and then you cover all surfaces, front and back of your hands, up to your, you know, up to your elbow if you can. And then you, you know, you scrub them, you know, in between, you get under the nails and you do that for 20 minutes. You sing the happy birthday song, I think it is. And then, and then you rinse them off with some clean water and then you've finally done it, right? And then it's time to go to bed or something, you know, you've washed your hands. Um, that, that, that reality has been something we've been living with. And we think to ourselves, well, there's nothing wrong here with the concern of, 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 of hygiene. I mean, they, these are just germaphobes. The Pharisees are just germaphobes. And that's the issue here. It's not the issue at all. The issue 
is ceremonial for them. The issue is a matter of tradition. It's a matter of tradition. Notice Mark's parenthetical comment there. Remember, Mark is writing to Gentiles who wouldn't understand this text because they don't know the Jewish mores and customs. And so in verses 3 and 4, he tells you, hey, by the way, just for those of you Gentiles who are reading this text, the Jews have all these, they have, they have a thing about washing, okay? And, and washing hands certain ways, but it's not just hands, it's pots and it's pans and it's, and it's, and it's reclining couches and, uh, and we could go on and on. Let me just, you know, that's what's going on here. I don't want you to miss the thing. That what we're talking about here is human tradition, not hygiene. And what, how they got here was how we often get here. They studied the law. They looked at the scriptures, its belief and its promises. They, they reflected on its commands. They read it. They reread it. They studied it. They teased it out. They considered its implications and its applications. And what rose up around the commands was a great tradition, a way of inhabiting or practicing the law that became fused in the minds of the Pharisees with the law itself. As if they were one thing. So that the law and the tradition are treated as one. That's how they understood what was taking place here. That the tradition and the law had been woven into one. In their minds, these extra biblical beliefs and practices were actually woven so closely to the law that they had now become a litmus test for knowing whether someone was truly faithful to God. In a word, they were measuring faithfulness to God according to standards that were set by men. Which means by implication... The basis and the focus of their religious life was not God, nor His Word, but on man and man's tradition. That's what's going on in this text. That's that's what's happening here. They've so connected the way they inhabit the faith and the practices that they inhabit the faith and the trappings by which the faith is inhabited. They've so married or fused those two that when they look at someone else, they judge them. According to the way they do it, not according to actually what God's law actually says. Now, whenever this happens, there's more we'll say on that in a minute. But whenever this happens, there's a blindness that sets in. There's a blindness that sets in. This is really important. We begin to pick out specks in other people's eyes when we're trapped in this way of thinking. While a two-by-four is in our own eye. It causes us to be very blind in a certain way. You know what we start doing? The blindness is like this. The things that are really, really major become really, really minor to us. And the things that are really, really minor become really, really major to us. That's the kind of blindness that happens. There's a kind of nearsightedness or farsightedness with regards to the law that takes place here when we begin to fuse a tradition together with God's word and begin in such ways to hold it as if it's on par with and the standard of God's word. Let me me point out the blindness in this text because it's not immediately clear actually. Well, there's a number of ways that you could do it. Let's do it just this way. Our English translations don't really note this. But if you look there in verse 2, it says they, 
that's the Pharisees, saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed, okay? In, in the Greek, you could actually read it this way. His disciples ate the bread with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. Now, sometimes that's included in translation. Sometimes it's not. But, but the language is there in the original Greek. They ate the bread. And the bread is actually set off with the article, the bread. <laughs> they ate the bread. Now, if you're reading along in the Gospel of Mark, where does your mind go? What happened in the previous chapter? The feeding of the 5,000. That's what happened in the previous chapter. Do you remember what happened at the end of the feeding of 5,000? They, they picked up 12 basketfuls of parts of bread and fish, one for every one of the disciples, right? So out of, those, out of those five loaves and two fish, God did an incredible miracle. They had a whole basket to themselves. And so what are the disciples doing now? Well, they're chomping away on the bread, the supernatural bread that Jesus had multiplied to feed 5,000 men, not even counting women and children. And the disciples here are enjoying supernatural bread. And they're in the presence of Jesus who identified himself as the bread of life. Who has come to satisfy all the hunger. The raging hunger that's in the hearts of men and women. Fallen men and women across all the world. And the Pharisees show up. And they see the supernatural bread being eaten by the disciples. And you know what they say? <laughs> Can you believe it? They're eating with, undefiled, with defiled hands. You, you should be saying to yourself, I don't think that's the point. I, th I think we missed something here. They're eating bread that's supernatural. And this man brought it about. In fact, go a step further. Those hands you're condemning were the hands he used to multiply that bread. You see what's happening here? Talk about minoring on the majors and majoring on the minors. To keep the tradition, we have to miss the entirety of the gospel here, you see. Now, this kind of thing... We are prone to. <laughs> we, we, we are prone to. We are prone to a people who honor me with our lips, but notice their heart is far from me. They don't even get it. They don't even see it. They are utterly blind to it. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines of the commandments of men. They have completely lost their way. Now, some of you, when you hear that, you're like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe that they're doing that. That's amazing. Well, down with tradition. <laughs> down with, this is what Jesus is after. He's after, down with tradition. Well, if that's what you think Jesus is doing here, I think you're misunderstanding. You know, Jesus is not doing away with tradition here. Jesus actually knows, and if, if we just spent you know, a half a second to really reflect on it, we would come to this knowledge as well. You're not going to do away with tradition. In, in fact, tradition is an inescapable human reality. It's inescapable. 
It's an essential human characteristic in the way that we actually inhabit the world. Every one of us, no matter who we are, have traditions. And there's no way for us to completely be free from any organization, structure, or context from which tradition is not in some way a part. This morning, as you're in this place, <laughs> um, there are traditions. I- I'm standing behind one. It's called a pulpit. I don't know if you noticed, you won't find the word pulpit in the Bible. I don't think we're sinning by having the the pulpit here, but I also don't think we'd be sinning if it wasn't here. Don't get too accustomed to it. It may be a good tradition, but it's a tradition. If I were, and I, I was tempted to do it, not wear a tie this morning. Would that be okay? Would that be okay? Some of you are like, finally, he should give up the tie. And others of you are like, I was hoping he was going to wear the robe, you know? Now, is it, is it, is, is it appropriate to be able to wear a tie in, in the administration of God's Word and open up the Word of God and to do in some ways, we might say, dress for the occasion, Of being in the presence of the Lord. Of of interacting and engaging with sanctified and holy things. Is there an honorable way to consider my dress in relationship to that activity? Absolutely. But it's not a law. And I don't want to burst your bubble. Jesus never wore a tie. I'm going to go further. Jesus never went to a church. He went to a synagogue. I'm going to guess you've never been to one. Tradition is inescapable. It's not not going anywhere. The question is, how do you hold it? How how do you hold it? What's it relationship to the revelation of God's word for you? Some of you are like, no, down with tradition. I, I can't stand tradition. I don't have tradition. We change everything in my house. Oh, so your tradition is to change everything. You know, there are those types. You know, what makes them nervous is when they do the same thing twice. That too is a tradition. Be a part of any organization, any family, any church, any school, and you tell me you don't have traditions. You have traditions. How do you hold them? They're not necessarily evil or good. How are you principally thinking about them? How are you reflecting on them? Can you let them go? Can you take them up? Can they be in service to the Word of God? And if not, do we need to drop them? And can we drop them? The problem that Jesus is addressing is that man-made religion, hypocrisy, tradition in this case, is so fused with God's Word that it's taken precedent over God's Word. That's what's going on in this text. You see, that's the illustration that's given to us in verses 9, and thir- 9 to 13 in the text. This, this, this whole analogy of Corbin, as he describes it, right? This, this pledge. Uh, Corbin is, is a promise or a pledge of resources or, or, of, or of money uh, in, in some way, shape, or form that you're going to give to God. It's a tradition that's actually rooted, if you look at it, it's a practice. You won't find Corbin in the Bible in terms of a, a particular tradition, but you will see it rooted in Numbers chapter 30. Numbers chapter 30 is the chapter on vows, where when a man or a woman makes a vow to the Lord, they are called to up, 
hold that vow. And one vow that one could make to the Lord would be to pledge a certain amount of resource or gifting or, or, um, or, or money to the, to the church, to the temple. In this case, Jesus is describing how the tradition of Corbin, rooted in a biblical principle of vow-making, Numbers chapter 30, is actually subverting the law. The tradition is actually undermining what God clearly commands. There was a bit of a slippery way to get out of having to take care of your aging parents that the Pharisees had come up with. One way to do that was for a, a young son or a daughter to just declare their goods Corbin. Now, to declare your goods Corbin meant that I pledged these things to the Lord, but it, it didn't mean you had to give them then right away. It's a little bit like your fundraising card. I promise at some point <laughs> to give these funds to you, not now. But I can declare that these things are devoted solely to God, hold on to them, and not have to use them for anything else. You can imagine a resentful son who's like, yeah, I'm going to claim Corbin over all my stuff so I don't have to give my parents anything in their latter years because they've never done me right in life. And I will look uh, spiritually faithful at the same time. Jesus notes that the Pharisees actually used the law of Corbin to bind the consciences of sons with money and resources of which their parents needed. That Let's say the scenario is like this. We claim Corbin for a piece of our finances because we love God. We want to give to the mission of God, to the service of God. We're, we're setting aside these for Corbin. And then your parents' house gets hit by a tornado. And we didn't see that coming. We had set aside other funds to be able to help them down the line. But, but, but this is not going to cover it. But I've declared this Corbin. Pharisees, is there any way that I could use what I've declared as Corbin to serve uh, my parents over here? No, you've given that to God. Question, Pharisees, would God be pleased with me taking the funds that I've committed to him and using it to serve my parents? Never in the category for the Pharisees. God commands us to honor our father and our mother. Does God command Corbin? No. They were taking the tradition and placing it above the command, even using it to subvert the commands. Think of what it is they're doing at core. They're saying what you commit to God is more important than what God has commanded of you. You see how that works? They had committed these resources to God. But God's command required those resources something different. You tell me which words should be upheld. God's word should be upheld, but not in a man-made religion. Not in a hypocritical religion. Do you see, they are raising man's words so above God's words and commands that even what God would command is ultimately subverted. Do you see, the problem underneath the problem of hypocrisy is placing man's tradition and man's words over and above God's words and making man the center of the religious universe rather than God. 
But there's a problem underneath this problem. And it's the problem of all problems. And you see at the bottom of all of this is the problem of the heart. That's the issue. The problem of the heart. Do you see that's where Jesus goes in verses 14 to 23, isn't it? That, that's what this parable is all about. He called the people to him again and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Verse 18. And then you are also without understanding, speaking of the disciples, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his what? Heart. But his stomach and is expelled. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the what? Heart of man come the list of sins. That, that's the issue here. At the end of the day, why is human words and human tradition getting more leverage than God's word and his binding commands? Because our hearts are bent towards us and not God. Our hearts are bent towards us, self-idolatry. This is the biggest problem of all. Now, Jesus wants us to know here as we get to the real source of the issue that human tradition is not really, at the end of the day, the problem. The end of the problem is how the human heart uses it, what it does with it. We have an uncanny ability to take God's good gifts and turn them into things that will destroy true religion true faithfulness, and even other people. An uncanny ability to do this. This is, why, this is why John Calvin referred to the human heart as an idol factory, always looking to serve something other than God. And if you trace the idols, no matter how they are rooted and, and, and upheld in your own life, you'll find that at the bottom of even those idols is really a service to yourself, that you're there. What Jesus wants you to know is that all of these actions, even the use of tradition in this way, even hypocrisy, all those lists of sins, all those external things that are manifested, they funnel from the heart. The heart is the source from which they come. So let's think here. Is the problem of the thief the fact that his, his hands have a stickiness about them? To pick up the things that are around him. Is that the problem with the thief? No, the problem with the thief is the thieving heart. It's the longings and the wants and the desires within him. That are thinking about himself and his own satisfactions. And haven't been satisfied ultimately in God. And haven't found their joy and freedom and peace there. And is looking for it in the context of the world. That's where the thief is. Ultimately, adultery. Is, is, is not really the source of the, of the issue. It's a fruit sin, the way John Owen would put it. It's a fruit sin. It arises from the root of an adulterous heart, of a lustful heart, a longing heart, an unsatisfied heart, a heart that's looking for peace and freedom and joy in something other than God. You see, this is why Martin Luther would say every known sin, no matter what sin it is that we're looking at, if we trace it down to its root, we find that idolatry is at its core, a longing for something other than God that we think will satisfy us. I encourage you, do a little test case in your own life. Pick that sin, even right now in your own heart and your mind, that you struggle with habitually, maybe as, even as a besetting sin in your life. 
Why is it? If you ask yourself some interrogating questions around that sin, what do I think I'm going to get if I commit that sin? What fruit do I think is going to happen? What do I think is going to click for me? What about myself begins to come into view in my own opinion if I do that thing or gain that thing? And you'll begin to find pretty, pretty soon that you're serving yourself rather than God and you are looking at a broken cistern that is never going to satisfy your quench. The Pharisees think the problem is unwashed hands. You realize that. But Jesus is telling us, you know what? The problem is an unwashed heart. The problem is an unwashed heart. You see, this is the problem underneath the problem, underneath all the problems, is the issue of the heart. And this is why we need a big solution, a solution that deals with our heart. You know, we will sometimes say that Jesus came to deliver us from our sin. That's a very faithful, biblical way to describe what Jesus has come to do. And some, sometimes our thought pattern is, he's come to deliver me from that time I lied or from... Um, but my, my anger this week at my spouse. or um, He came to deliver me from that sinful, adulterous thought. He, he came to deliver me from that gossiping way that I had in that Bible study as a prayer request. Right? We tend to think of very particular incidences of sin in our life that he delivered us from. That's exactly true, but you know it's a lot deeper than that. And if you think that's all it is, you haven't really gotten to the depth of what Jesus has come to do. You see, Jesus has not just come to deliver you from your sin. He's come to deliver you from you. From the very center of you. This is why when Paul talks about conversion, he says, I have been crucified. I have been crucified. I am no longer who I was. I am a new creature in Christ. He has taken out the heart of stone and he has given me a new heart of flesh. Now why do you need a new heart? Well, you see all those longings that lead you to the commitment of so many sins and thought words and deeds, the source is the issue of the heart. So you've got to have a change of heart. You've got to have a transplant. It's got to happen in you spiritually. And when you trust in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what he does for you is he doesn't just say, all right, I've wiped the slate clean. Now get out there and do better next time. You're not going to do better. That's not good news, you see. That, that lasts for a split second. You need someone to come in and actually replace the heart that is longing for the things of the earth and the world for satisfaction to a heart that begins to long for God and finds its satisfaction in Jesus. You see, that's what's going on in this passage. These Pharisees have a hungry heart that they've got to bolster their self-righteous idea of their keeping the tradition of the elders. And they can't stand it if somebody else doesn't, which is why they're pointing their fingers at the disciples. And Jesus is saying, listen, you need to come take a bite of this bread. You need to come take a bite of this bread. You, you, have, you have missed the forest for the trees. And this is why, friends, even as we look at this, right? Issues of temptation, sin, struggle in our own lives. And my heart convicted in a, in a myriad of different ways this week. Coming before the Lord, confessing sins. And realizing that this heart of flesh that he's given me in Christ still has a ways to go. Before it takes hold 
of everything in my life. And a verse came to me this week, 1 John 3.20, gave me such incredible encouragement, especially when I was feeling pretty discouraged at one point. As, as you know, you think you're making progress in the Christian life, and then the Lord shows you all kinds of stuff. And you go, oh, I've got a long way to go here. And he said to me, when your heart condemns you, know this, that I am greater than your heart. I am greater than your heart. That's what he says to us in 1 John 3, 20. When your heart condemns you, I am greater than your heart, he says. Your heart and the way that it is today is not the last word on you. I am greater than your heart. And then it says this. I love these little words. And he knows everything. I'm so glad it says that. He knows everything. Do you see, I only know a portion of how wretched I really am. He knows everything. And he's greater than my heart. He's greater than my heart. Now listen, if that melts you, you might just know Jesus Christ. But if I'm speaking Greek to you right now, pray that the Lord would open up your eyes to see him. Because the true believer, when he hears the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he knows his or her need for it, and it's presented, and we are aware of it, our hearts melt. They burn within us. But for the Pharisee, the Pharisee in this room is still thinking, I hope he wears that tie next week. I hope he wears that tie next week. Where is your heart? Give it to the Lord Jesus Christ today and forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, meet us here in our need for your grace. Comfort and lift us up as we pursue you in faith. Even now as we pray the prayers of the people and as we enter into intercession, asking you to come and do these things in us. Holy Father, you call us to flee from sin and to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. But yet we wander from your commandments. Give us grace to seek you with our whole hearts and to hold on to the truth that we have attained through Christ. Father God, listen to the prayers of your people. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord Jesus, we wander away like sheep and do not follow you, the good shepherd. Our fear of sacrifice and the cost of following you cause us to turn away from listening to the truth and to wander into myths that support our own agenda. Keep us in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Lord Jesus, listen to the prayers of your people. Lord, hear our prayer. Holy Spirit, be our keeper and guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We are prone to wonder, but give us the grace to flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart and to take hold of eternal life to which we have been called. Holy Spirit, listen to the prayers of your people. Lord, hear our prayer.